If you would take your Bibles, please, for our study this morning, we're headed to the book of Matthew. The last chapter in the book of Matthew to follow up with our missions month, we are headed to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, a very, very familiar passage to most all of you. But I wanted to end up our missions focus with this type of a thought this morning. It talks about Jesus right before he ascends into heaven, meeting with his apostles and giving them his last command. We read in Matthew 28, verse 16, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. In this text, Jesus is giving some very clear commands to his disciples. And one of the commands that he talks about, he developed into different rituals, different rites over the years. We heard about how some nations have developed religious practices, religious rites. There are some countries, you know that down in Mexico, Latin America, and China, they do the same thing, where they have the Day of the Dead, where they have a celebration where the families gather around a gravestone. They bring food, or they bring different items. In China, they bring small cars. They bring toyed items of Houses. They bring some different printed cash. They put it on the graves with the idea that those who are deceased will be able to use those items in the afterlife. And even amongst those who claim to be quote-unquote Christian, they have this idea that we need to help out the people on the other side. There's a practice that in some countries they do this when their dead are buried. That they take their bodies, they wrap them up in some special cloth, and they take them up to the mountains. And there they have special caretakers who take those bodies out there after they have been exposed to the elements for several days. Then they cut up the bodies in small portions. And if the condors come and eat up the body, that means that their spirits are taken into the blessed place of the afterlife. It's a practice, it's a ritual that still goes on even today. There are other countries and other peoples, other religious groups that have weirder different types of religious practices. The group that is Scientology, if you hang on to their two different cones and hold them in your hand, somebody's going to be able to monitor you and be able to understand by looking at their, their machine in front of them what your spiritual condition is. They're going to be able to tell what you need through this e-meter that they use, that they use as a device to be able to get into your inner soul, into your inner being, and they use this time and time again. And surprise, surprise, they have things you can buy that will help you you to get a better reading on their e-meter. Then there's groups that do this. There's groups that some of us grew up in, like I grew up in the Catholic Church. We were told that regularly you need to come in the springtime or in the fall. And then you come to the priest, and if he would hold the candles here by our neck, and then he would say a special prayer, we would never get sick that year. It was to prevent all colds. What happened in COVID? I don't know. Okay, that they never did this. Or we'd wear this little scapular, this little medallion around our neck, and it was to protect us from all evil and all accidents and things of that sort. And they had it ingrained, and that form of superstition still goes on today. Some religions in India, they have a tower that they take the little, the little infants or children up to two and a half years of age. They take them to the top of the tower and they drop them some 50 feet 
and they have some men below that catch them in these blankets. And if you take your child and let it be dropped, your child's going to get richer in life. Your child's going to have more intelligence in life. Your child's going to be able to be luckier in life. There's all kinds of religious activities. We heard about that over the last few weeks, about how different peoples are blinded to do all kinds of religious practices, some that seem absolutely silly to us, some that seem bizarre, some that seem corrupting the truth of the Scriptures. But Jesus very clearly said in Matthew 28 that there are some practices that we're supposed to be following. One of those that he talked about in the, in the text is he talks about the religious practice, the religious, some might call it a rite or a ritual, we call it an ordinance. He says that we're supposed to practice this regularly, observe it. Peoples like you are supposed to be observing some of these. There's two of them. What are they? Well, the one that comes out the quickest is communion. I'm going to do something this morning that I typically don't do. The mentor that trained me for ministry, one of those who strongly influenced, Dr. Jordan, who helped get this church started and get on the road, he had a way of doing outlines for his messages. They were always who, what, where, why, when. So you knew exactly where he was going. It seemed so simplistic. And this morning, I'm going to steal from Dr. Jordan. And just talk about communion for a few minutes and deal with the who, what, why, where, when idea. The who, according to scriptures, is supposed to be baptized that Jesus talked about in Matthew 28 are those who have first trusted Christ as their Savior. I, like some of you, was baptized as a baby. That doesn't count. That baptism isn't biblical. You have to first believe in Jesus Christ to be your Savior. You personally have to call upon him, which an infant can't do. And so we go into a series of scriptures that tells us that before baptism there was belief. Watch this. Repent and then be baptized, every one of you. Then they that gladly received his word, then they were baptized. We read when Philip goes and preaches in the group of Samaria, he says to them, or it says about them, when they believed what he was preaching about Jesus Christ's kingdom, then they were baptized. Believe first, then baptism. We go to Acts chapter 8 where the eunuch is on the road and Philip is called by the Spirit, led by the Spirit to come and talk to him. And he asks him, what are you reading? Do you understand? And in the conversation it says, he preached Jesus unto them. Him. And later on, as they go along, he, the eunuch says, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? The response, If you first believe with all your heart, then you may be baptized. We read in Acts chapter 9 that the Apostle Paul was on a road. He's struck down by the Spirit of God and he sees Jesus in heaven. He is blinded. He calls out and says, Lord, what would you have me to do? I think that's his salvation experience. And then three or four days later, when the man comes and restores his sight, the first thing he does when his sight is restored is then he is baptized after he has accepted Christ. The Philippian jailer comes to Paul, comes to Silas as they've been singing praises in jail. And he says to them, he says, what must I do to be saved? And they say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. They don't even bring up baptism. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. They spake unto him the word of the Lord. And then he takes them afterwards and the same hour of the night he washed their stripes and he was baptized after he believed. We read even in the account of Acts 16, were Lydia, the seller of purple. They come, they preach to her there next to Philippi, and she attended unto the things spoken of Paul. She listened to what he had said, and when she was baptized then, and her household, belief first, then baptism. We even have in Acts chapter 18, Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed 
in the Lord with all of his house. And it goes on, it says, hearing, believed, and then they were baptized. You see, the scripture makes it very clear. You have to become a believer. You have to know that you've accepted Christ as your Savior before you get baptized. So my question to you is, have you ever believed in Jesus Christ? If you have put your faith and and trust in Jesus to be your Savior, then the second thing you should do, or the first thing after that, is what you should do is follow what Jesus said. You should get baptized. And in the New Testament, we have time and time again, which we just showed you a few of them, where individuals believed and then they were baptized. And they willingly did it. They didn't have to be convinced by time or by a preacher. They did it as, as willing participants of saying, I want to be baptized. Why did they do it? Why did they do it? Now, churches today will say, okay, the reason you get baptized is so that your sins will be washed away. I was taught that. I was told that for years, that the baptism washes away your sin. Baptism was a way of helping you get into heaven. Baptism is going to help you to become a child of God. Otherwise, you end up, without being baptized, you end up in limbo, some in place that is out there, but your spirit never gets to heaven. Or you get baptized so that you become a really good person. That is not why the Bible says we should be baptized. The Bible teaches us very clearly that the reason that we need to be baptized has nothing to do with salvation because salvation has nothing to do with that tank getting you into heaven. The idea in scriptures is that there is a savior, a person who saves us, not a practice that we do. The Bible says very clearly that when Jesus was on the cross, he is making it clear that baptism doesn't save. Do you remember the thief says, remember me when you enter into your kingdom? And Jesus said to him, today you will... The man was never baptized. He's going to heaven, not based on baptism, but belief on Jesus Christ. In fact, the Apostle Paul, when he's writing to the Corinthians, he was the great evangelist everywhere he went. He preached the idea, you must be born again, you must be born again. But he says, I'm so glad I didn't baptize any of you. Why would he say that if baptism is a part of salvation? He would have gladly and earnestly been involved in their baptisms. But he says, I'm glad I didn't because some of you have it all confused. You see, there's only one way into heaven. It's not baptism. It is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ made it clear that you have to be born again, that you have to believe on him, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by him. To be born again, you believe in your heart that he is the only one who can save you from your sins. You call upon him to save you, to forgive you of all your sins, past, present, and future. And in that repentance, you say, give me your gift of eternal life, and he births you anew. You're born again by believing on him. And this is for everyone. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's not by baptism, for by grace are you saved through faith, not of works lest any man should boast. So why do we get baptized? After we believed on Christ, there is a couple good reasons why you're supposed to be baptized. The Bible makes it very clear that one of the reasons you're supposed to be baptized, it's commanded. 
It's commanded. This is something Jesus wants you to do. Go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father. He wanted it preached. He wanted it taught. He wanted it practiced. The apostles picked up on that. And the apostles, they start teaching and preaching this idea of salvation in Christ followed by baptism as part of observing all things. And so we know that the apostles also commanded Peter when he's preaching his first message in the book of Acts. We already alluded to this. He says, repent and be baptized afterwards. Baptism, when he says that, it's a command. It's an imperative. Then when Peter is preaching to Cornelius and his household, as he's preaching, he sees the Spirit of God come upon them. It's evidence, it's visible that they've gotten the Spirit of God. In other words, they've been born again. The Spirit of God has come upon them. He commands them that they should be baptized in the name of the Lord. He didn't say it was something optional. It's something that you can sit around and debate for 10, 20 years. He commanded them immediately that they were supposed to follow the Lord. It's also a picture It's not only to be done because God commanded you to do it. It's a picture. It's a picture of what? Of what Jesus has done for you and what you intend to do for Jesus Christ. We read in the book of Romans that it says, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus were baptized into his death. What's he mean by that? He means that when we get baptized, just like Jesus Christ was buried and raised... We are picturing what he's done for us, that he died, buried, and rose again so we could have forgiveness. We're picturing his great sacrifice. We're saying to others by this symbolic act that Jesus did this for me. He is the one that died, buried, and gives me eternal life. We read as well, buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who raised him from the dead. You being dead in your sins, he has made alive and has forgiven your trespasses. You are picturing, you are saying to other people, I want you all to know this is what Jesus did for me. He died, buried, and resurrected. You're identifying with Jesus Christ. In in other words, what you're doing, you're picturing what God has done for you personally. You're saying by this picture, this is what God has done for me. This is what I am trusting in. I am identifying with the work of Jesus Christ that it is him that saves, not something I do. And I am telling everybody that I have trusted in Jesus as my Savior, and I am showing what he has done for me. This is an important identification in God's mind. That he commanded in the Great Commission that it be practiced, that it be preached, so that his own disciples, those who believed on him, would would identify with his son and say, he is my Savior. I didn't save myself. He is the one not joining a church, not not doing some good works. It is the work of Jesus that saved me. You know why we should be baptized? We should be proud and grateful that Jesus died, buried, and resurrected for us. And not ashamed to confess that before others. But there's another confession that goes with it. The picture goes a little bit further. It says in Romans 6, Knowing not that many of you who were baptized into Jesus were baptized into his death. We talked about that. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. 
what you are saying by baptism is not only this is what Jesus has done for me, this is what I intend to do for Jesus. I intend to die to my own self and walk in newness of life. I want everybody to know I am going to live for Jesus Christ. In fact, he went on to say, for if we've been planted together in the likeness of his death, we should also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, and henceforth we should not serve sin. We are declaring, I'm going to serve Jesus. Who in this room would not want to declare, I want to serve Jesus who died for me? The way to do that is by baptism. It is his way of you identifying that you are a true disciple of Jesus Christ. So it's very simple, okay? Those who have believed. They are doing it to show that they are a follower of Jesus. That eliminates private baptisms at home. It has to be a public declaration before others. So we go a step further and say, okay, when is it supposed to be done? Well, according to the scriptures that we already showed you, it's very, very clear. It's got to be done after you get saved. You have to believe, first of all. And we know that because if you believe, then you may. They believed, then they were baptized. But let me suggest this to you, that in the New Testament, they got baptized pretty quickly after they were, after they were saved. That they did so, the Jewish crowds received his word and were baptized the same day. We read elsewhere, the jailer, the same hour of the night after he washed their stripes, he was baptized. We read in Scripture, as soon as Paul received his sight, several several days later, he was baptized. This idea of waiting, this idea of postponing until you feel like it, that's not a New Testament concept. That's a modern-day concept. The New Testament concept is to get baptized, to declare your faith soon, quickly. How do you do it? How is baptism supposed to be done? The simple answer is by immersion. The word means to put under the water. It means to dip. It means to plunge down. It has the idea of uh, submerging. If it's like I was baptized as an infant, it wasn't biblical because, number one, I hadn't believed. Number two, it was done by sprinkling. It can't be in the Bible. There is no sprinkling baptism in the Bible. It doesn't exist. It exists in church practice. It exists in, in, in tradition, but it's not biblical. In the Bible, we know that it has to be by immersion because immersion only can picture death, burial, and resurrection of what Christ has done for you and what you're doing for Christ. That can't be pictured by sprinkling. It can't be pictured by pouring. It has to be immersion. As well, we know in the scriptures that the word that is used, every time you read in your New Testament baptism, like in the book of Acts, you're going to find that it comes from the word baptizo, which means to plunge, to put under. There are other words in the Greek language that talk about pouring, that talk about sprinkling. They weren't used for baptism. So somewhere, somehow, churches have taken it upon themselves and convinced their flocks that they can change the Word of God and create a new practice to make it more convenient. But according to the Word of God, baptism has to be after you're saved and done by immersion, or it's not a biblical baptism. As well, I'll give you a simpler proof. You know, it's the weaker, but it's there. 
When they baptized in the Bible, they always did it in large bodies of water. I, I, I don't mean like an ocean, but they did it where there was enough water where you could put somebody under. That could be a tank, that could be a river, that could be a, a pool, a pond, but something that required enough water more than sprinkling or pouring wood. So you go to passages like this, when Jesus was practicing baptism, he did it in this area because the reason there was much water there. Well, that implies immediately that they did it by immersion because they needed a larger element of water. We have the Ethiopian eunuch. When he is getting baptized, they went down into the water. If it was just by a little dabble do you sprinkling, they didn't need to do that. So the indication in Scripture is they had to be baptized by immersion. So I have to ask myself this question. Why don't believers get baptized? Why do people sit in Bible-believing churches, get saved, hear about baptism, but a teenager or an adult, they just don't do it? They don't practice it. Well, there's the possibility that they've never been trained. They've never been taught. They've never been told that the Bible says this is something you need to do. There's the possibility churches don't stress it. Churches don't bring it up. There's that possibility. There's the possibility that some are afraid to do this in public because they, they, they just fear being in public. I, that, that I understand. And yet Jesus wasn't afraid to go to the cross for you. Then there are some who say, I don't want to admit that the way I did my baptism years ago was wrong. I don't want to admit that I really wasn't saved. And for my pride's sake, I refuse to do what Jesus said. Or there may be some who they've called upon Jesus, but they don't want to identify with Jesus. They want to keep it a secret that they're a believer. Or maybe there's just some who don't care what Jesus says. They really don't care. They don't have a desire to follow after Jesus Christ. Some just, they're going to do their own thing. They don't want any preacher to tell them what to do. I don't know. If you're not baptized, I would pose this. What's your excuse? What's your reason? Why haven't you been? Maybe, maybe there are some who would say, but I was baptized some other way. It wasn't what you're describing, but it'll be good enough. Maybe you're baptized as a baby, or maybe when you got baptized, you still weren't saved or sure of it, but you got immersed before you got saved. So you're kind of saying, well, that'll do. I'll, I'll make that work. I don't know. But the bottom line is this. If you were baptized in any other way than what by immersion after you were saved, you weren't baptized according to the Bible. It's as simple as that. In fact, you should get baptized the proper way. And you know what? In Scripture, there's an account of people who are baptized the wrong way. And when the Apostle Paul came to them, and they said, well, we were baptized before we believed on Jesus Christ, he instructed them to get baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, even though they had been immersed earlier by John the Baptist. He said, You're, it wasn't proper. You need to get baptized the right way. So baptism is very simple. It's an it's a ordinance commanded by Jesus Christ. And if you are sitting here this morning and you are trusting in your baptism to get to heaven, it, it won't work. It won't work. You need, you need to put your faith in Jesus, 
not baptism. You need to trust in the Savior, not the picture of the Savior. You need to trust in the Savior. And if you're here this morning and you aren't baptized, you should be. You're commanded to do it. You're to identify with Jesus Christ. If you are properly baptized, that is, you put your faith in Christ, you know of a time and a place, and you follow by immersion after that, then live up to your baptism. You declared, I would live for Christ, are you? That's what you declared. Then do it. Then live for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I mentioned our two ordinances. The other one is right here in front of us this morning. The other ordinance, and if you go to 1 Corinthians 11, it's said in 1 Corinthians 11, please, it's described in detail in 1 Corinthians 11, this other one that we call communion. It is another one of those who, what, where, why, when that's going to help us to look at it just quickly. The who is supposed to celebrate communion is very simple. It is those who are believers. The reason that we would say that according to scriptures is when Jesus instituted the communion in the very first evening, the night before he died, he did it with his disciples, with those who were believers. The, there's conflict in the text that some say, well, Judas was still there, where another one of the texts makes it clear that Judas had departed already. My inclination is that it was without his presence. And then in 1 Corinthians 11, we read very simply in chapter 11 where he's describing communion. He says, when you come together, when you come together, and according to the very first few verses of this book, when he wrote it, he was writing to the church of Corinth. He wasn't writing to a family. He wasn't writing to a private household. He was writing to a group of the believers that he'd gotten together forming a church. And he writes to them, he says... When you all come together, these are supposed to be believers. The church is made up of born-again believers who have followed the Lord in believers' baptism. He said, repent and be baptized. And then they that believed in what he was saying, they were baptized on the same day there were added unto them X amount of souls in the book of Acts. And so this is an ordinance that is for those of you who have put your trust in Jesus Christ and you've already said, I declare Christ by being baptized. So the who is very simple. Believers gathering together. Not in private little households and just getting together and saying, after we have supper, let's as a family do communion. That is not 1 Corinthians 11. That is very clear. Paul made it clear when you come together as a group. So the who leads us then to the why. Why do we do communion? Well, again, it's, it's just what we said with baptism. It's commanded. Commanded by Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ first initiated that night, he made it clear. He said that this do in remembrance of me. It was a command. This do. When Paul writes about it in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, I have received this from the Lord, that which I'm going to share with you. So God told him, hey, tell it to the church. Tell them how to do communion. Tell the church group that they are supposed to do communion. And they're supposed to do it because, what we said the apostles commanded it, that it is to be done in remembrance of me. This do. Again, imperative. It says it a couple times. All of you do this. This is something that you do on a regular basis as often as you would. So the reason we do it 
is the why is because one, it's commanded. Two, it pictures what Jesus has done for us, just like communion. Communion pictured what Jesus died, buried, and resurrected. This pictures what Christ has done for us. And by us doing that, we're showing others what he can do for them. What he has already done so that they can be saved. So we read in 1 Corinthians, as often as you drink of this cup and eat of this bud, you do show, you declare, you proclaim Jesus died for us. And so we make it very clear. He said, when you do this, you're representing what I have done. The cracker, the grape juice that we use, they represent the sacrifice Jesus made. The cracker, the bread, that's his body that's broken. The grape juice, it's the blood that was shed. Sometimes he says for many, other times he says for those who have remission of sins, all means the same thing. This is representing what Jesus did for us starting on Good Friday and carries through till Easter. That he loved you so much that he gave of his own very own life. And we're supposed to practice this in remembering. When do we do it? Well, we do it with regularity. As often as you do, you do show the Lord's death. How regular? That's up to us. But it means that when we gather as a body, when we do this, we're supposed to do it over and over again with some type of regularity. And we decide. And we're supposed to continue doing this until he comes back. So he hasn't come back. So our church is obligated that we do this with regularity. We choose to do it once a month, typically. The first Sunday of the month. That's by our choice, because as often as you do. And when we do it, we're supposed to continue this practice until he comes. And that means that he has a reason why we do this regularly. My question is, why? Why do you think Jesus wanted us to periodically, whether it be whatever we choose, we chose once a month, why does he say, keep doing it regularly? Why? Any idea? So we don't forget? Out of respect? Keep it fresh in our mind? Is there the possibility, Jorge, with what you just said, and a couple others, is there a possibility that we would forget what Jesus has done? Does it ever happen in the week that you just kind of go about and forget about Jesus for a few hours? Yes, no? Okay, good. I thought I was the only one. Okay. I thought I was the only one that can go through a day without stopping and pausing at moments and just getting busy. Does that ever happen to you? That you just get busy, that sometimes we take it for granted. Sometimes life pressures, they pull us away. I I don't forget that I'm saved, but I don't sit and reflect and rehearse the whole thing. But sometimes, some of you have been there, where all of a sudden the trouble, oh, let's say you're waiting in a waiting room at the hospital. You know how you only have to wait five minutes? And you get to there, to the ER, and you're waiting, and you got all these other people coughing, and and you're going to curl up to keep... And you get so enamored with your circumstance, you forget. Is there, does Jesus know us well enough that he says, I want you to do this regularly so you keep it in your mind? Because you can get busy. Or the trials can make you... Exp- or, or maybe he says, do it regularly because this is supposed to be a time when we celebrate fellowship with each other. 
that we're supposed to be getting along with each other. Is there the remote possibility Christians might have conflicts? That they need to seriously consider, i got to get this thing right. And not take communion, but i got to get right. Is there the possibility that Jesus, when he says this is so serious, you make sure you're right with others and right with God, that we need prompting once in a while to resolve issues and not put them off. That we need to confess and not keep putting it off. And so Jesus says, do this. And some, some of us are goofy like this. We get so enamored with the deeper truths that we forget the simple truth. Jesus loves me, this I know. And we want to learn the deep truths, which are good. But we forget the really basic, Jesus loves me. So he says, do it with regularity. And when you do it, here's what I want to make sure you know. He says, do it with remembrance. Remembering. Remembering me. Think about me. Think about what I have done. Take time to recall how I have sacrificed myself for you. Rehearse in your mind the beating I took. The suffering of six hours on the cross. Remember that for several hours, my and my, I and my father were separated because of me and my sins. Remember. Think about it. Think about what he's done. Think about how he was rejected for me, for you. So do it with remembrance. Do it with rejoicing. Do you remember how the Lord kicked off the first? And when he had given thanks. This whole idea that even though he was facing death and his spirit, he says in John 12, that it was being pulled, he took time to give thanksgiving. That means that no matter what our difficulties are, this is a time to do some rejoicing. To thank God. Maybe, maybe, you've, maybe outside these doors, you've got troubles. You've got bills awaiting for you. You've got car issues. You've got house issues. You've got neighbor issues. Here, take time to rejoice and to think about the most important things for all eternity and rejoice in it. Take it as a time of reflecting. I'm going to dig a little bit deeper on this remembrance because he says, not only in reflecting in the back, but let a man examine himself. Shows up in this text. Let a man examine himself. Oh yeah, we're looking back. We're looking back at what Jesus did. That's good. We're going to be looking up, you know, in that sense that, that Jesus is, you know, what's ahead? He's coming back. This do until I drink it with you. He's coming back. He's promised us a home with him in heaven. This is just the hors d'oeuvres of a great supper with Jesus. So we're supposed to look back. We're supposed to look up. But we're supposed to look in. During the communion, we're supposed to be looking within ourselves. Let a man examine himself. He says in the text, if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. By who? By God. We're supposed to be looking in to say, am I right with God? Am I in good relationship with others? This is a serious time. Reflection and rejoicing and celebrating and looking around to see, you, do you remember the whole gist of 1 Corinthians 11? They have problems in the church. They have division in the church. The first few verses are all about the, the schisms that are in the church. That they have favorite preachers. 
that they have this, that, and others. And that when they get together, the poor don't want to, the, the rich don't want to be with the poor. And he writes to them. And he says, I praise you not when you come together. It's not for the best. Some of you got some real conflicts going. And he says, you need to stop the divisions. You're supposed to, at the communion table, look around and realize Jesus died for all of us. I'm not better than you and vice versa. And we're all going to be in heaven one day. We better get along now. So he's serious about this. So serious that he says, you, when you do this, re- this communion, do it with reverence. What I, what I take from the scriptures is, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup unworthily. He's not saying, only ones who are supposed to do it are those who are worthy of getting saved. None of us are worthy of getting saved. Not a single one of us. The word for unworthily is, you're doing it in a disrespectful fashion. Don't do, eat this bread and drink this cup in a disrespectful fashion, because you're guilty of mocking the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Whosoever, he says it twice, whosoever drinks or eats unworthily. So we're supposed to come with examining ourselves, not saying, I don't need to. I'm good enough. It's their fault. They need to make the first move. Uh uh. Uh uh. That's an unworthy attitude of pride. We're supposed to have this seriousness of respect, not silliness. We're not supposed to be flippant. We're not supposed to be mechanical about our communion when we celebrate. We're supposed to be respectful of Jesus. We're supposed to think about what he has done. We're not supposed to consider these just like a common element. Ah, it's not that important. This is important. This represents Jesus' body and blood. This is valued by the Father. And Jesus says when you do that, you respect it. You know, we would have a bird... You know what I mean? We'd have a bird if somebody was trampling on our flag. We get upset when we see that happening, do we not? Maybe you don't, okay? But does it bother you when somebody takes the flag, throws it on the ground, and disrespects it? We would get really upset. And I, and I saw it once when I was a preacher boy, that one, one guy came along and he wanted to demonstrate how people are tearing portions out of the Bible. So in the church I was working for that summer, he got, had an old Bible and he just said, some people are tearing, the, you know, they're, they're no longer preaching baptism. That's like tearing this out. And he tore his Bible. Then he tore out another section. Tore out. He was doing it to illustrate a point, but it got people really, really upset. Yeah, l- let me see if I can put it this way. What do you do with an old Bible? How do you dispose of an old Bible? Let me know. I've got like 12 of them on my shelf that I don't want to get rid of because I've got writing in them. But the pages are falling out. I can't use them anymore. But I cringe at throwing it in the trash. But I know it's not a holy page. It's just, it's a Bible. So I kind of, what do I do with it? How do I handle it? Wrap it up in a dirty bag and throw it so nobody sees it. I, what do you do with Jesus? He is holy. He is the righteous one. This represents Jesus and what he did for you. So when we come, we're supposed to be seriously looking inwardly, upwardly, 
backward. And he warns us, says, if you come and treat this in a light fashion, you could bring discipline to your life, child of God, if you're flippant. That's why he says some are already weak and sickly in the church of Corinth. Because they were just not that important. Just the thing we're supposed to do. We do it the first Sunday. He says, don't do it. I plead with you not for my sake. I plead with you for your sake. Don't take communion unworthily. You be serious about this. Because God knows the heart. God knows what's inside. He takes it very seriously. We ought to too. It's a time of celebration, a time of rejoicing, a time of reflection. It's a time of remembrance. So what's it mean for us today? Let's celebrate it. Let's rejoice in it. Let's sing about this, what Christ has done. Let's celebrate, but at the same time, let's make sure we don't, we don't make it a problem for somebody else. Let's not distract others. Let's respect others. Put away the phones. Put away everything else. You know, and let's think and thank God for what he has done when it comes to communion. If you're here this morning, you're not born again. Thank you for being here. But this isn't a service for you. This is a service for believers. You're welcome to sit and watch quietly. You're welcome to step out. But we're going to celebrate communion the right way. Those of you who need to get right with God, do it. Need to get right with somebody else, do it. Don't take communion. But let's celebrate what Christ has done by singing, reflecting, remembering with something so simple. What sacrifice he made for us.